Today on Wellbeing, we'll have a look at the work of occupational therapists. Where do they fit into the medical scheme of things? How do we find them? And how do people benefit from their skills? Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols. Dr. Imelda Bergman is my guest today. As well as working as an occupational therapist, she lectures at the University of Newcastle. Imelda, thank you for coming and welcome to the program. Thank you, Iris. Some people seem to know when they're quite young what they want to do in life. Is that you? I knew that I wanted to be a farmer. Um, first of all, I knew I wanted to work with animals. Then I decided I wanted to be a farmer. But the last thing on my mind was becoming an occupational therapist. And I didn't know what one was. So for me, it was a matter of falling into it just, I think, through serendipity. But I also think it was what I was meant to do with my life. So what is the role of a, an occupational therapist? What we do is to help people to engage in occupations, in meaningful occupations. So that doesn't just mean work, which mm. is what a lot of people think mm. we are. And, of course, there's occupational rehab, which is about going back to work. But for us, meaningful occupations can be anything from making a meal for your family to, to being go being able to go to work, to walking the dog, to participating in your favourite hobby, um, to looking after your children. So it, it's all the things that you would do in a day. So from the time they get out of bed mm. to, to learn to dress themselves or dress, have a better shower, way of dressing them. Yep. Yeah. So getting dressed, having a shower, having breakfast, getting on the bus, all mm. of those things. So where do you actually fit into the role in with the rest of medical sessions if you like well we would be referred to by gps uh, or specialists but nowadays and particularly because i work with children those referrals can come from teachers and parents and other concerned individuals as well would they need to have a, a particular condition to have brought them to your attention Usually they do, but we certainly see kids who have no definite diagnosis, but you might a child might have a mild developmental delay, and that's enough for a parent to be concerned or a preschool teacher to be concerned. So even if it's just for us to assess the child and say, no, everything's fine, or if you just continue with this, you know, and come mm -hmm. back in six or 12 months or whatever. At what stage of the child's development would you be called in? I mean, from the time they were, were born or when they're at high school? or There certainly are um, occupational therapists who work with children in the premier units in hospitals mm. and work in relation to or work very closely with the physiotherapists in relation to um, monitoring that child's environment and making sure that it's safe and quiet and the child moves when they need to move. Those sorts of very, very basic but very important things at that age for a preemie. As up to um, kids who are transitioning into work. Oh, okay, so you come mm. basically right the way through. Yes, we yeah. do. Do you get to hear about a child through the hospital? If it's, if it's a young child that's a preemie or, or a young child that's in hospital from, from birth, mm. 
do they sort of ring you up and say, Imelda, come and have a look at this child, or how do they go about it? Well, it would be, if a child's actually in hospital, it would be that the specialist would make a referral or their nurse unit manager would make a referral. So the referrals would come from someone within the hospital, Mm. if, if that's where the child is. But it may be that... A physio or um, a speech pathologist would say, I think this child needs to see the OT as well and therefore would ask the referring doctor, Mm. you know, is that okay? Can this person come in too? And I guess the GP, if he's watching a child from birth and they go in for their vaccinations and all of those sorts of things and they're aware that perhaps they're not doing as well as they might, they would... GPs certainly do, yes. yes. Would he need a... A referral, a written referral to come to you or can you...? Not necessarily. It it very much depends on the service. So we may work in hospitals, we may work in community health centres. In Queensland, occupational therapists um, and other therapists work within the education system. Mm. So they're actually based in schools, but that's not true in New South Wales. We might work in private practice. So we can work in a number of different areas. And I, let's say, for instance, work for First Chance, which is a charity organisation. So Mm. the referrals can actually, depending on where you work, that will determine where referrals can come from. Mm. Perhaps later on in the the program we'll talk a bit about First Chance. And I think the other one is Snug. Mm. Um, And we'll come back to those. When you found out about the child, what's the first step that you take? Do you watch them at home or in the school or how do you...? Ideally, it's being able to um, spend time seeing the Mm. child uh, without doing anything formal and also just sitting down and talking with the parents about the child's skills, you know, what they can do, what they really like to do um, and what the parents see as being important for the child to achieve. Mm. And then it would go on to doing um, a formal assessment. So if you go into the home and you sort of just generally watch the child either at play or doing what they they do. would normally do and yes we might bring some toys with us as well that might actually because it's building a tower of blocks or because it's doing something you know scribbling on paper will show us particular skills as well Mm. but the child is comfortable in their own home and and more relaxed about the whole yes yes but i mean often children will have to actually come and see us Mm just because of the time involved. So they they may be in an environment they don't know, but they're still with their parent and they're still being able to, let's say, um, engage in activities that are familiar to them, mm. at least. So if you've got them coming in to see you at the clinic or wherever that you happen to be, is it at that stage you sit down with the parents and say, look, if we do this, we can encourage him to do that Mm. and that's how you make your assessments and and the changes to their lifestyle the assessment will often use a standardized assessment so Mm. it's been standardized against other Mm. children so that will give us a a very clear picture of where this child sits in terms of their abilities and the things that are challenging for them and from there will still be the parents goals and then being able to determine is it best for us to do to talk to the parents about what to do at home, should the child come and see us, should we put things in place in preschool, or all of the above. If the child's a bit older, do you find that it's easier just to work almost on a one-to-one thing about what they want to achieve? Yes. 
Yes, very much so. And do you find that that varies very much from child to child? Probably, oh, it's a good one to think about, but probably for most children, if I think about children with learning difficulties, Mm. let's say, who are often very bright boys, that the one thing that I've found in uh, from working with them is what they want have kept saying to me is that they feel as if they're dumb so what they want is to not feel that you need to be able to apart from helping to correct whatever they're doing mm. to simply boost their self-esteem um, yes. and bring that up which yeah. then flows on to whatever they're doing i guess that's right yeah mm. you're listening to well-being and today we're looking at the work of an occupational therapist Imelda, you mentioned earlier about sometimes working with someone who's autistic. Mm-hmm. What's the main problems that you see confronting you as a general thing with someone who's autistic? From an occupational therapist's perspective, we're interested in looking at the child's sensory abilities. For children with autism, there is a significant difficulty dealing with the world, but dealing with the sensory input from the world. So the things that they hear and see and touch and the clothes that they wear, the pitch of someone's voice, there are lots of things that can make, that can actually become quite painful for a child with autism. So we're interested in figuring out what that is. And for some kids, it's it's actually the opposite and what they want can be that they actually crave more input, sensory Mm. input. So it's actually figuring all that out and then working out ways for the children with autism who are just backing off from the world because it's too overwhelming and too painful, ways to help them cope with that and to help them from a nervous system point of view, so that real true therapy point of view, Mm. but also helping them on that day-to-day basis as well. So helping the child understand and how to look after themselves, but also altering the environment so that it's easier for them. Is that a a really long process? Or once you get it started, does it all sort of start to click in and work? Very much depends on the child. child. Do they sometimes have the physical problems of coordination? And while they're concentrating on doing whatever they need to do with their hands and feet, that they forget about the rest of the world? For children with autism, it's more that they are what we call dyspraxic. So that means that they actually have difficulty with coordination, but in a purposeful way. So if you watch them, they're actually quite clever with using their hands and you know being able to run around and climb and do all of those things. Mm. But when you come down to can you hold a pencil and draw a line, that becomes much more difficult for mm. them. So that difficulty with coordination that actually is productive, I guess, from our point of view. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And what about the children with, let's say, cerebral palsy? Their circumstances are obviously quite different from a child who's autistic in a lot of ways, mm. in as much that they don't have as much control over their, their limbs and, and often their speech. So how do you start working with, with a child with CP? For a child with CP, it's... The initial thing for any therapist will be looking at the child's positioning because if they are stable and feel physically stable and safe, then they can start to use their arms and their head and they can start to look around, like with any baby. Mm. They can start to look around and the arms can start to move and 
you what we would do is actually help them physically to move and to be able to get things. But again, it will be adapting the environment so that they can actually play with things and whether it's giving them a different spoon so they can eat by themselves or a different sort of cup or um, something to sit in in the bathtub so that they can actually sit and play in the bath. Rather than toppling over or or become... Or a parent having to hold them. Yeah, which is something that the rest of us take for granted, obviously, mm. which must be quite an achievement for a child once once they can do that. Yes, if they can do it by themselves, yeah. yes. So mm. how often would you see a, a child, let's say with CP, how often would you see them? I mean, ideally it would be every week and it, it depends, you know, it depends on lots of factors though. So it'll depend on the service that you work in and how much time you've got to see every child and what sort of Mm. waiting list you've got too, which Mm. are often quite long. It will depend on the the need, you know, how old the child is, what their needs are, all of those things come into account. So let's say if I was seeing a child with autism and they were four or five, just as an example, then I would ideally like to see them at least once a week. And ideally Mm. I would like to see them at home. I guess as well as you being able to help them through your trade, if you like, mm. that sets up a rapport between you and the and the child. Yes, it does, certainly does. Yeah. Mm. If you see them ideally at home, is that covered by Medicare costs, or are that in some circumstances, or is that a private practice or health fund? You know, because obviously your services need to be paid for somewhere along the they line. They do, which is why seeing kids at home can be it doesn't always happen very often Mm. so it can be because of the travel time involved and somebody Mm. has to pay for that and if you're in private practice then the parent needs to pay and that can obviously just become you know almost overwhelming I guess yeah Yeah. and financially just very difficult for people that it's enough that they have they're paying for private Mm. access and to pay for travel on top of that that's like being you know ideally we would see the kids at school as well Mm. Um, and but it's the same thing. It's paying for that travel and those time with the teachers. So if you saw them in clinic or the mm. hospital, or whatever, that could be possibly covered by Medicare in a public service. In a yes. public service, yes, that would be covered. But often in those services, you don't have um, the ability to go and see children at home unless it's above and beyond. You know, unless mm. there's something particular going on that there really is a great need for you or because you're doing home modifications, you know, there's something because a ramp needs to go in or the bathroom needs to be changed Um, because it's the time involved in making the Mm. trips, which means Mm. other children don't get seen. So it can be a really hard decision to make. You mentioned about the waiting list. What sort of waiting list would in general? General six to 12 months and you're talking, and this is for under fives a long time in a child's development because they gallop along at that age it certainly is we had when i I used to work at um a children's hospital in brisbane at the martyr children's hospital and the one of the pediatricians said that the waiting list at at one stage had Mm. completely blown out and i think was something like two years Mm. and he said you know you turn up you put a referral in and by the time you get to come back to see someone you've grown up which yeah. is about what it can be That's what happens. in some cases. And I guess in, in that time lag, they've developed not good, shall we say, not good habits. Potentially, yes. Yeah. 
So yeah. you've got extra work to do to undo that mm. and then put them on the straight and narrow and, and take them off. Yeah, on a more productive path. Yeah. Mm. Do you ever work with elderly people as part of your of your service? Um, occupational therapists certainly do. Mm. Because I've always worked with children and, and adolescents, I've only worked with uh, the elderly in one or two settings where mm. I've gone into a job where it's been across the board. Right, okay. Mm. Just picking up on that for a moment, if an occupational therapist was to go in to do an assessment for elderly people, they're the ones that say take the, the carpets off, the rugs off the floor yes, and, that's right. and put rails yeah. up and all that. Look at the false risks yeah. and what can we yeah. do. So those risks, I guess, also apply to children. They do. Um, not having mm. rugs and things that they can skid on and, as you say, yep, in the bath. Making sure the environment's the best yeah. it can be. What about them having pets around them? Is that a, a if there's pets in the house, mm. is that a good thing to encourage the children to relate, if you like? It certainly, it certainly can be. And pets are often, for children with disabilities, are often very significant friends. Mm because they're someone who will always love them unconditionally. And, and I guess they always can talk be to ready them and to be play. there. Yeah, mm. they can tell them everything that's going on. They'll always be loved. All of those things are important. So, And the skills that can come from caring for a pet are very important too. Yeah, I guess just feeding them mm. or grooming them or, mm. or, or just cuddling them, I guess. Yes. Yeah, not to cuddle too tight and, no, and all right. of those things. Right. <laughs> Drag them around by the tail. <laughs> You're listening to Wellbeing and my guest today is Dr. Imelda Bergman. We're talking about the workings of an occupational therapist. Imelda, in the course of your working, you mentioned just now that you work with First Chance and Mm. I mentioned Snug. Mm. These are organisations that until we were talking the other day, I had never heard of and I'm sure there's a lot of people who haven't heard of them. Tell me about First Chance. First Chance is a charity that has been around for, um, I only started working for them this year, so I think they've been around for 20, at least 20 years. And they provide early intervention services for children. Mm. Um, So up until, you know, babies to when children transition into primary school or into Mm. kinder. And... The services are provided for children within the Newcastle and Port Stephens, Raymond Terrace area. Mm. So there are services on campus. Children, There's actually a centre on the University of Newcastle campus mm. and children come in to attend groups. There, and there are also groups in the other areas that I mentioned as well. Yeah. This is an organisation that's only going here locally for us. Mm. Um, will there be other sorts of similar organisations throughout the country? The Karajong Early Intervention Service in Wagga mm. is an exceptionally great service for mm. children, early intervention, that 0 to 6 age range. And they service certainly parts of the Riverina um, as well as also going up into Tumut. Mm. Whether there are centres in other areas, I actually am not sure. I can't mm. answer that. If somebody wanted to find out, would they go through their local area health service? It would be the best Mm. thing to do, I think, because particularly if you're talking about country areas, then Mm. people will know what services are around, as in ringing the local community health centre. 
and I guess that goes for interstate yes. people as well. Yes. Um, if you look if hard you're enough, in a rural you'll find or it. remote mm. area. Mm. So let's go back to first chance um, and what they do. You tell me that they sort of step in and, and help the child in that transitional time. In the in the babies to six, yeah. so that early intervention period. And what do they actually do? Well, children come in and attend playgroups. So oh. the playgroups will have um, teachers in them. They will also have either a speech therapist or an occupational therapist in oh. the group as well. And it's for the child's development. So it's looking at the child's play and social interaction skills and development of their what we call gross motor, you know, running around mm. and climbing skills and fine motor, so their hand skills as well, and looking at, you know, toileting and eating your lunch and being able to sit at a table. For some kids that's very difficult, mm. but it's obviously a skill they need by the time they get to kinder. That's right. In your usual practice and you see children on a one-to-one basis, do you sometimes recommend that they join a, as a group uh, into that group environment? I think for most children that's very important, being able to model off other children but also being able to learn about that interaction with other children, particularly Mm. before they go to school. And the children that come to First Chance are children with autism, children with um, attention deficit, children with cerebral palsy, children with Down syndrome Mm. and some kids who have just a global developmental delay and nothing more specific Mm. than that, but that's their diagnosis. So how does that differ, or if does it differ, from SNUG? And I realise that's an acronym. very different. (laughs) (laughs) But it sounds lovely. It sort of does. It sounds like you want to gather the child up. (laughs) So what is SNUG? SNUG stands for Special Needs Unlimited Group. And it was the idea of a fellow called Dr. Peter King, who is um, a dentist in uh, Newcastle. Mm. And it's only just come to fruition. So this dream that he had has now happened. And it is a camp for families who have a child with a disability. So the first camp was in January and Mm. it was held at Myuna Bay, just south of Newcastle. And the whole family with the child with a disability come to the camp for a week. Mm. And the purpose of the camp is for families to connect. So we're talking about rural and remote families who may never have seen another family who also has a child with the same condition that theirs does. So they get together. They can spend time together. There are lots of student volunteers, university student Mm. volunteers, who helped with getting the the siblings and the child with a disability involved in activities and meant the parents had time to talk to each other or just time to sleep. Mm. For some, you know, for one family, they'd never had a holiday in, you know, hadn't had a holiday in seven years since their daughter was born. So the first camp was for for, um, children with Rett syndrome, which is girls Mm. and their families. The second camp, which was held about two weeks ago, was for families with children with cerebral palsy. And um, they'll be planning further camps as well. And so what the idea is that these 
uh, the group of people that came to a camp will come back again in two years' time and get to meet up mm. again and spend time together again. But I guess in the meantime, they, they've now made the first connection, mm. so they will keep in touch with one another and maybe even meet themselves without right. that organised um, And that certainly happened over both camps, that mm. people have exchanged phone numbers and addresses mm. and exchanged a lot of knowledge as well. You know, mm. some, some parents have particular knowledge about whatever and, and they'll share it with another parent who doesn't know that. So that's mm. been great. And to see all the siblings get together too yeah. has been Because I, I suppose in a lot of ways the attention comes on the child with the disability and the other kids tend to come, run around the outside, if you like. They're part of the family, but they're not part of the family because the handicapped mm. child gets the first attention. Can work both ways. Mm. I've found so it can be that that the the parents' focus is on the child with the disability, and the siblings are expected to help. And mm. most siblings will, but yeah. some can be from a young age can be expected to be quite responsible. But it can also, um, in some families, be the other way around, where the child with the disability can feel like they're on the outer because oh, they right. can't physically participate. Yeah. So they're. They're in their wheelchair sitting there, but they're not actually involved. And what they end up doing is watching the family together. Mm. So that they don't get the opportunity, I guess, to practice any skills they've got if they're mm. just sitting there and, and watching. That's right. Yeah. So the other thing for, for Snug, as, as I'm hearing it, is simply interaction with, with everyone and dispelling that, oh, it's only happening to me syndrome, yes. which happens with a lot of conditions whether mm. it be cancer or, or um, whatever. And I think that's very important for people to be able to mix in and do those things. Mm. So there are other camps coming up? There are other camps coming up and there's, um, I can't tell you the focus of mm. them because that's their, the steering committee's having a meeting in a couple of weeks to yeah. determine that. So are there any other skills, if you like, that an OT has mm. that I guess as part of this program we need to know about? Or do you think we've covered them all? From the look on your face, I think we've probably covered them all. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, there's probably a lot more. Yeah. Now, we also do work with, um, let's say, uh, young girls with anorexia. So the whole mental health oh, okay. area as yeah. well. So there are, there are certainly um, OTs who work in adult mental health, so mm. whether it's um, you know drug addiction or schizophrenia, people with schizophrenia or whatever, mm. um, when you're talking about paediatric OTs, is what um, is you know, what? the medical term for yeah. what I am, I guess. Then we're looking at um, children who do have those sorts of issues with their emotional well-being. Mm. Imelda, time has beaten us again, as it always does on this program. You've covered a tremendous amount of, of ground for me today. So thank you so much for coming in and talking with me and giving us your information. And that was great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Iris. My guest today has been Dr. Imelda Bergman. She's an occupational therapist and a lecturer at the University of Newcastle. Thank you for listening, as always. And until the next time we meet, this is Iris Nichols on behalf of all the team wishing you well. <laughs>